how I look at a foot is, aside from the load management stuff, which is you're just doing way too much or way too little, I look at a foot and, and just say, can it change shape? That's my big question. And that's the question that I try and take people out of the, the minutiae. And I love getting into the minutia, but I'm, when I'm working with coaches and therapists, I try and just ask them in the beginning, can this foot that's right there staring at you, can it change shape? Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast, hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective. I'm Nick, and we're on a mission to empower humans to restore natural health and function from the ground up so they can explore movement and live life with freedom and confidence. Friendly reminder that you can actually get paid real money to listen to our podcasts using Fountain as your listening app. Fountain also allows you to support the podcast directly if you enjoy listening or if you find these podcasts helpful. This week, I speak with David Gray. David shares his story of how he came to do the work that he does today, uh, what it's like working with pro athletes. We share our definitions of health, and we also share the things that we've recently changed our minds about. I really enjoyed the conversation with David, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Ciao for now. Before we jump into this week's episode, I wanted to share a story from our community. Ray Cameron is a member of our Explorer program. Well, before I started this journey, my feet used to be all cramped up tight because of the unnatural footwear that they've been accustomed to. But I also have bunions. Now, by doing all of the exercises that I have available to me through the Foot Collective, basically I'm getting to splay my feet. I think for me, mindset is one of the biggest things that uh, contribute to our success because it's our mindset that actually says, what's my why? Why am I bothering to do this? Why am I putting all this time, effort and energy into working on my body, what am I getting out of it? And when I get to a particular point that's hard, do I then give up and go back to a life of you know, comfort? Or do I actually keep going? We become our own physician. We actually listen to our body. So what we're being asked to do is to do these exercises. Feel within your body, where are you? You know, sort of like being mindful. And it's those things that we do through our self-assessment that actually says, ah, these are the things I need to work on to actually improve myself. We then get a set of tools to help us do that. We look at feet and footwear, we look at balance, we look at doing squats and being on the ground. And all of those are incredibly important, but the other thing that is important is the community of people. So the feedback and encouragement that we got from everybody, we're all getting to the same destination. Our journey's not all the same because people have got different issues and therefore you work on them differently. But at the end of the day, it's about life. If you're like Ray and have a specific foot or ankle condition, issues up the chain at your knees, hips or back, or just want to improve your overall movement health, the Explorer program is for you. To learn more, head to thefootcollective.com forward slash explorer or head to the link in our show notes. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to TSC's Restore to Explore podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Nick, and today I'm hosting uh, today's conversation with David Gray. So, David, thanks for being here and taking the time to share your story and your wisdom with our community. Thanks for having me, Nick. I've been following you guys for a long time, so uh, I know you do a lot of great work, so I'm looking forward to the chat. Cool, man. Yeah, likewise. Appreciate your time. So maybe a good place to start uh, is with you. You know, what's your story? How did you come to be doing the work that you do today? I know as someone with a podcast and uh, a big community, you've probably told the story many times, but our community might not know you. So I think it's important. So yeah, how'd you come to do this work and what's your story? 
uh yeah it gets a bit harder every time you tell it um you don't know what you don't know what to add in or or, or keep out but i will keep it brief basically i grew up as an athlete in ireland trying to play some irish sports in particular uh, gaelic football and hurling two irish sports that people may or may not have heard of or seen before but very physical sports and i ended up with just picking up quite a few injuries over the years and just getting super frustrated with the care that I was receiving from let's say physios and doctors and surgeons and the supposed best in the world and looking back some of that might have been my fault some of it wasn't not necessarily I don't mean like all, all their fault or anything like that but it was just a sign of the times that we were in even in the last 10 years probably you see how much the industry has evolved and improved and how people are actually the solutions I think that are available now are probably a little bit better or at least uh not that the solutions are different necessarily but they're more there's more awareness around them so uh so yeah eventually I kind of got to a stage where my athletic career was suffering quite a bit as a result and I I kind of went on a little bit of a journey to just say okay I'm going to travel around I'm going to try and find loads of smart people and see what I can learn and pick up along the way and that's what I did and I did learn from a lot of smart people and then eventually it kind of just happened that people started asking me for help. Uh, kind of recognized that okay, this guy seems to know a thing or two, maybe. And um, yeah, and I, I suppose fast forward now to where we're we're at a stage where I'm working mostly in the rehab space, working with not just athletes. I do really enjoy working with athletes because that was my background. But just people who, particularly people who are active, let's say they they like being active and they're maybe carrying an injury or just a chronic pain issue or just feeling restricted in their body they would like to move a little bit better and they're they're struggling I don't love having to motivate people to do exercises and rehab um I do like having the conversation explaining why it's important but I'm not particularly keen on working with people who just won't get off their ass so that's not necessarily my population but I work with I get to work with like some of the world's best athletes in different sports and then just loads of loads of um a mix of people and mostly in the rehab space and we also so I suppose 50% of our business is that and then 50% is kind of educating coaches and therapists who want to do the same and yeah it's been a fun journey and uh it's brought me uh, made a lot of mistakes along the way but I'm pretty happy with where we're at we're still making mistakes but we're trying to figure it out as we go amazing yeah it's funny how many people come to um sort of discover truth for lack of a better word by personal experience right and the idea that you know you're the only one that can discover truth no one can tell it to you no textbook can tell it to you um and it's interesting how many people that i've talked to in the in sort of the foot and ankle let's call it lower body rehab space um that actually just come to this through personal experience where they had their issues that couldn't be fixed. I had my own issues with my feet that couldn't be fixed despite my physical therapy training. And I was like, okay, I'm clearly missing something here. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like once you put, once you take the, um, the glasses off and you see things for what they are, it's like, oh shit, everyone has lower body problems and most people don't even have pain yet. Um, and yeah. And what would you say motivates your work today? I mean, you're doing a lot of things, you're doing workshops, you do the podcast, like you do a lot of stuff. It's a lot of energy. What would you say your primary motivator is uh, today? And has that has that been something that's shifted since you first started doing this? Um, good question. And it's actually something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently because, yeah, we are, we are busy with things. We do try to be as consistent as we can with our content and our workshops and programs and stuff like that. So 
I have thought about this quite quite a bit recently, and I think I have two things that are kind of motivating me. One is whether I like to admit it or not, it's actually fear because I worked in like the corporate world for a while. I went and did I had a I did a marketing degree. I worked in sales and I was okay at those jobs, but I really did not like them. And I really did not make a good employee probably because looking back, I always had a problem, not not like arguments or anything like that, but I just didn't have a passion for what I was doing. And I would love to never have to work for anyone else again in that, in that way. It's not that like, I, I don't mind being a contractor. I work with different organizations where we're helping an athlete and stuff like that. Like, I love that. I love collaboration, but just sitting in an office wearing a shirt and tie is just not for me. So I, yeah, whether I like to admit it or not, I definitely have a fear of that. And I want to make sure that this works so I don't go back to that. So that's, that's one thing. I, I don't recommend being motivated by fear, but it is a good motivator also. It is a good motivator. And same in rehab. Sometimes people will not do anything until the pain gets too much and now they have no choice. So that's kind of, um, that's kind of one thing. The other thing is I would really like athletes and just anyone really who wants to move and feel good to not have to go through a lot of the shit that I went through. So I had a lot of issues with my knees and my Achilles and stuff like that. And we got get a lot of clients now that, and kind of what took me six years or eight years to try and figure out, we're often able to help people figure that out for themselves in a matter of weeks or months. And that, and I don't just mean, I don't say that to brag or anything. There's lots of great people that are doing that. So kind of, it started off, it switched a little bit because it started off very much where I was trying to help a lot of individuals. And now we're, coaching and our kind of mentoring for coaches and therapists it seems like that's the best way to reach a lot more people because you train them up and obviously as you know yourselves they're able to go and use all these things and they have the tools as well so two motivators fear and then helping people and i don't know which one is stronger it kind of flips i think yeah those that's a great answer and i think uh you know the notion that pain and you know fear might be a, a kind of a type of pain i don't know i haven't really thought about that that deeply but the idea that pain is the ultimate tool for transformation and the ultimate motivator right um it doesn't necessarily have to be and you hope that people don't get to catastrophic levels of pain before they're willing to change but i don't think many people would argue that pain is the ultimate tool for transformation in life it has been for me um and yeah i can appreciate that fear of living uh, a mundane boring life that just washes you by before you know it is uh is a real fear and I, I definitely share that fear so yeah appreciate those answers um yeah and i think you know you said at the start it's like it's almost like we're going from one world from the old legacy world of the way we treated where it's like oh you have a problem let's just look at that one spot let's strengthen uh, let's do some mobility um, and let's just make you feel better. Like it's all revolves around eliminate pain and really just old approaches that are very isolated and really aren't that empowering um, to this new way where it's like just educate people. And like you said, it's like you've spent all this time and energy talking to so many people, working with so many patients, having this deep experience. Um, you know, the fun part is being able to give people your cheat codes, right? Like you spend 50 hours learning something and you can convey really the essence of what you what you uncovered uh, in like 10 minutes to give someone a lifestyle ch change that can like literally transform their health. Um, it might sound a bit sensationalistic, but I found that to be quite true. Um, and yeah, I think one goal with this podcast is 
I think some people in this space sometimes look at it as like your competitors, right? You have online programs, we have online programs. Um, but the notion that like the foot problem or low, let's say lower body um, suffering, lower body related suffering is like a giant problem. Um, and we're all on the same team. And I think we can all learn better by having conversations and actually disagreeing on some things to kind of collaboratively uncover truth together. We can just understand a lot more um, and be a lot stronger together. So yeah, I mean, we want to foster collaboration and we appreciate yeah. people like yourself who are coming on here and, and also spreading the word yourself. And the other thing that resonates is like teach the teachers. That's how you maximize and scale your impact. Like di the digital realm is a, is a totally new realm mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the amount of people you can reach. But if you teach one teacher and they teach a thousand people in the end, you really scale your impact in a huge way. Um, so I think you're yeah. right, Nick. I think the people like the people that we're competing against really is think of the amount of people in the world that are taking painkillers for simple issues that they yeah. shouldn't be taking. They're they're going into not even podiatrists, let's say. I, I, I know some great podiatrists and I think orthotics can be useful for the right person at the right time, all this stuff. But they're going into sports shops and they're just getting on a treadmill. And they're just being given a, an a, an orthotic immediately as a result. So we're we're also kind of competing with people who are just always relying on manual therapy for everything. There's there's a lot of people in pain. All you need to do is go, and not just pain, just go outside and have a look around and see how people are moving. They're struggling. So yeah. I'm the same. We have people on our podcast who s some people would say to me like, "Oh, you're a competitor of this person." Like we're we're really not and what what i say the way i speak about a foot or, or an ankle or something like that might not resonate with people the way you speak about it might and vice versa so i think we can all learn from each other help help each other and there's a lot of people out there that need help there is definitely not we, we are not the competition i don't think <laughs> Yeah. And we're not going to saturate this either because no. it's a giant problem to solve that we're like not even touching the surface of. So we need more of us. We need to collaborate more. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's get into some more specific stuff. So I'm always curious to see how people, um, you know, deal with certain topics. So if someone comes to you and says, David, I've got plantar fasciitis. I've been told by a bunch of medical people that I have flat feet. Um, you know, what are you telling this person in your first session together and sort of, you know, the, the notion of plantar fasciitis and quote unquote flat feet would just love to hear your thoughts on that. And yeah, how that, how does that first conversation go with that person? Uh, it, so obviously it depends, of course it depends, but that's a crappy answer, but, uh, it, I will say it depends on, it depends on what type of person they are. It depends on are they very athletic because I've had some athletic type of people who've, who've picked up that issue or are super unathletic. So I will always be kind of coaxing them in the direction with my explanation of like why, why I think this is going on. We, we don't know necessarily, but I'll always be kind of coaxing them in the direction of where I want them to move. If it's you need to learn to maybe move a bit more, you need to learn to move a bit less. My explanation around my assessment will be will be a bit different. But in general, how I look at a foot is aside from the load management stuff, which is you're just doing way too much or way too little. I look at a foot and, and just say, can it change shape? That's my big question. Mm -hmm. And that's the question that I try and take people 
out of the the minutia and i love getting into the minutia but I'm, when i'm working with coaches and therapists i try and just ask them in the beginning can this foot that's right there staring at you can it change shape this person brings weight into the foot and back out of the foot can it change shape because we wouldn't necessarily be super concerned with someone's neck position or shoulder position and all these things we might get information from that but we would just want to know can it move can it change shape and with a foot, whether it's flat or because you could get a very stiff, flat foot that cannot change shape. You could get a very stiff, very supinated foot that cannot change shape. Or you could get a flat foot that actually can supinate and pronate. It looks like it can move pretty well, but it's just set up in this kind of position to begin with. So that's the first thing that I'm looking at. Can it change shape? And when you're thinking about plantar fascia, if the foot can change shape, that means that I can move from a more pronated position into a more supinated position and back again. And really, then you know that the fascia is actually being able to get fully lengthened and fully shortened, or at least lengthening and shortening. So that's my first thing with it, with an issue like that. And that really goes for Achilles issues. It goes for sesamite issues. It goes for a lack of big toe extension all kinds of foot issues my first question is kind of foot chain shape and i'm not super concerned around how it actually looks and appears although you can get some nice information from that i would love i would you'll see some of the best athletes in the world some of their feet look pretty nasty and they don't change shape that much but they they have they seem to have enough movement there they can get away with it and also they've built a lot of strength so that's my key question can the foot chain shape and everything else becomes very clear if you ask yourself that i think yeah, that's a great answer. And yeah, it's definitely a trick question because it's, um, you know, it's not one template fits all, but I love how you emphasize like function over just the static snapshot. I think a lot of people get caught up with the notion that they as a static snapshot, this is what my foot looks like and it has this problem. And I think yeah. a lot of professionals in the medical and rehab world are probably guilty of labeling people with these snapshot related, um, labels, um, and it's just a really basic, almost lazy way of looking at it. It's like, I want to, I really care of what is your foot capable of doing, not how does your foot look in one specific moment in time? Um, yeah, appreciate that answer. And I, yeah, I think just the focus on function is something that uh, I was never taught in physio school, right? It was yeah. like, this, this is a picture of this kind of foot. This is how you treat that. And it said nothing about like, what, how does that foot actually move? How do those 33 joints actually articulate? Uh, and really that's where the juicy stuff comes from. So, um, feet and, or, uh, footwear and balance. I think, you know, to me, it's like, those are two super underrated areas, uh, both in the professional athlete world and also in just the everyday person, the realm of everyday people. Um, how do these two things factor into the patients or people that you work with? Are they on the menu as topics of conversation? How do you, uh, yeah. How do you approach them? Footwear and balance. Uh, so on on the balance thing i think i think balance comes from being able to organize our center of mass over the stance leg so gait i i kind of break the gait cycle down into like everyone does stance and swing so we've we've stance and swing now we can drill into swing phase and start to uh, look at smaller phases within swing and we can drill into stance and look at smaller phases within stance but just as a whole and definitely for the podcast it, it, i think it's nice to just think stance and swing 
And if you can get into right stance and you can get into left stance and particularly mid stance, that's where our center of mass is going to be stacked over that leg. And that is balanced to me. Now, you think about, you think, when you think mid stance, you would think about kind of having a slightly bent knee, having, um, you can start to think about foot pressure. So there's this kind of even enough pressure between the heel, the midfoot and the forefoot. And then between lateral and medial, there's even enough pressure there. Your head, your ribcage, and your pelvis should all be kind of stacked over that, which will allow you to keep your even foot pressure. So I think balance can become quite a, a tricky topic. Sometimes people confuse things about balance and, and get into the weeds about balance. But balance ultimately comes from just being able to access mid-stance, which is super important. The cool thing about stance and mid-stance in particular is it's when you're com- super compressed on that side. So if I'm in on my right leg, my everything on my right side is compressing, which means everything on my left side is expanding and opening up and getting a chance to experience the opposite. And then I switch from one to the other. And really, true balance is being able to go from right stance to left stance to right stance to left stance, which is ultimately like pronation, supination, pronation, supination. Um, so that's a, it's a super important skill to be able to to be able to train with people. Now, there's obviously the earlier phase of stance and then the later phase, but mid-stance is a key point where we're going to have a lot of balance. With regards to footwear, again, it definitely depends very much. Um, I like to get people training in their bare feet as much as possible. I particularly like in the gym, I like to get people doing some plyometrics. I like to get them doing squatting and hinging, different work under where they have more heel pressure, midfoot pressure, pressure where their heel is off the floor, just loads of loads of mixture of things, balance drills, everything there. Um, when I try, I try not to change people's footwear too much in the beginning, unless they have like a ridiculous pair of, of shoes on, it's just absolutely stupid. Like I, I'll get them out of them, but I try not to change them too much in the beginning because I want people for my job for the most part is to help people experience the power of movement and trying to instill great habits into people. And let's say I try to do a couple of foot related drills with someone who has a foot or an ankle problem or an Achilles or whatever. But we also changed their shoe and we don't, we've done that on, on, on the first session, then they might be able to convince themselves that it was purely the change in footwear that mm. was the thing. And actually the drills that we did were, were maybe useless. And it could have been a mix of both. It could have been whatever. So I like to make one change at a time. And whenever I can, I'll, I'll try and instill good habits around movement. And I can deal with the footwear problem like a little bit later on and maybe get them into something with a wider toe box, um, different things like that. Um, so yeah, I do like to get people barefoot when, when we can, but I don't rush towards it. And I also appreciate that some, sometimes a good shoe with an arch support, or I don't even want to say support with, with a little bit of an arch reference in it can be helpful, particularly for people with very supinated feet, because if people are super supinated and super locked up feet, particularly around the midfoot, what you'll often see is they have a very poor ability to actually even sense the floor because they can't really pressurize someone with a very stiff locked up midfoot in a supinated foot. They struggle to get into mid stance, which goes back to the balance thing. And I hope I'm not going all over the place here. No, but you're good. You're they good. struggle to get in there because that's where our most amount of pronation will occur. So they really struggle to get in on top of their foot and pressurize their midfoot. And sometimes if you take a shoe away from them, 
their their midfoot, their arch, their medial arch in particular, is so far away from the floor that now their brain can't sense it at all. And so sometimes an arch support in a shoe, not to block pronation, it's actually the opposite, to help the, the, the brain feel that middle of the foot feel that uh inside of the foot so now now that they can actually move into pronation can be good and i have seen some people who have been kind of taken away from from their footwear put into barefoot shoes or, or gone barefoot and i've seen i've seen some people get worse and it, it would be more so usually more so the more supinated people actually stiff supinated foot uh rather than the pronation which i think is counterintuitive to what a lot of people would think yeah. And I think with footwear, I mean, our approach is always trying to get people to less footwear, um, but it has to be paired with more foot, right? Like you have, it's, it really footwear kind of boils down to load management, right? If someone's used to this um, supportive footwear and you completely remove that, you might just overload their system or create a bunch of uncertainty, right? And the reaction is put a bunch of spot welds in the joints because we don't know what the hell's going on on the ground. Um, and yeah, it's always a delicate balance of like, where is someone at? What's their current level of function? And what are you trying to accomplish? Cause like you said, if you introduce 10 variables at once, not only may you confuse the system, but you actually can't isolate like which thing is having the most effect. And that doesn't give me much useful data. If I, can, if I can't actually isolate and figure out what's making the difference. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, on Instagram, a lot of people think, oh, we just tell people to go barefoot or wear natural footwear. And I think, you know, obviously Instagram is not really a place for super nuanced dialogue, no. <laughs> but it is, uh, you know, nothing can be said outside of context with any level of certainty. You know, everyone loves to ask, oh, what do I do? What shoe do I wear? It's like, well, I need to ask you a whole lot of questions to give you direction. But here are things you can ask yourself to consider, you know, are you ready for this? Do you want to do this? Do you understand the trade-offs you're making? Um, but I think in general, people are just being pushed. It's like, okay, let's put you, you have foot pain, let's put you in a supportive shoe. Oh, your pain came back, let's put you in more support to the point where they're literally wearing like, you know, an air cast on their foot and they can't even feel the ground. And then yeah. it's like, okay, we got to unwind this a little bit because you're essentially starting to rely on this external thing, just like a pain, uh, pain drug. Um, and, but it is a, it's not the why, it's the how. It's like the how, there's a lot, whole lot of context to kind of consider, um, and yeah, in the pro athlete space, it's so, it's becoming more interesting now. Like even with yourself, I'd be curious working with pros, um, the pro athletes I've worked with have always surprised me in that they are the most gifted and hardworking people, but they're also the best compensators. Like they're the hardest ones to give a screen and have like a, make the invisible visible because they're just so good at, okay, if they don't have it here, they're going to find it from here and their body's master, uh, just masterfully compensate so that you can't really see where the chinks in their armor are. What has surprised you most or, or, um, you know, has been most enjoyable or just surprised you most about working with pro athletes? How's that experience been? Um, good question. I think you're definitely right about the compensations. I, I call, I, I have three words for that. I have a compensation, which I try, I try not to use that much anymore, even though it does make sense, but it is i think people start to associate that with a negative which mm. it's not uh it's certainly not in my view because they are able to still play their sport at a very right. high level obviously much yeah, better it's an adaptive than, response exactly so i try to I, I i appreciate the word compensation and it's not like a 
it's not like a hard no for me. I use it, but I, I try to use. I think I think sometimes a better word is just a strategy. This is how mm. they this is how they access their internal rotation. This is how they access their external rotation, their pronation, their supination. It might be a more e version than pronation or whatever different things. And then the other, the third word is amplification. So if you if you need, if you're a pro athlete who's moving very, very, very fast, let's say, you, you have time constraints on you. So a lot of sprinters, I've worked with some really good sprinters who have very, very little ankle dorsiflexion. Like if you ask, if you look at them doing a, if you ask them to do a bodyweight squat, there is no way in hell they will squat down on their heels. They won't get their butt on their heels. And it's because they're so tightly wound because they need a lot of tension in their body and they need a lot of pre-tensioning. The whole scale of, let's say, being a sprinter is being able to pre-tension because I can't wait for my foot to hit the ground to be able to then turn on all of my muscles. So they, they're very, very tight and for a good reason. So I think a lot of the time you will actually see a lot of very good sprinters, for example, set up with a very pronated foot. It looks like a super flat foot to begin with because they have such short ground contacts. And for, for me, at least this kind of mid stance and max propulsive position where we push the most, it's not in, in the triple extended, like push off position. It's where, where we're working hardest is where we're, our body is stacked over our foot. And that's where naturally all of us should be in our most pronated state um before that earlier stance and later stance would be more supination so in the middle is more pronation now if you think about a sprinter that only has a super 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 short amount of time a good sprinter not someone crappy like me but someone super fast they are going to maybe okay i i i don't have that much time to set to set up to to move from supination to pronation so guess what i'll do i'll set up in more pronation to begin with my body is set up there so now i start to think of that maybe as not necessarily a compensation even though you might see it as that or where they're rolling the outside of the foot off i might just see it as this is a way of amplifying the strategy that they're that they're using to get more push and to get it happening quicker and sooner so what i see with great athletes is very similar things than everyone else that i work with super similar i think a lot of people will try to come up with fancier and fancier drills for great athletes and actually often they need the same basic things that everyone else needs the the big difference is that they adapt really fast they adapt faster um they they will learn skills super fast now that's still i still don't think that means you need to rush on to advanced drills and all this stuff because the other thing is that they have a very strong stimulus coming from their sport all of the time which is kind of pushing them back into the, the direction of the amplification or the strategy or the compensation so a lot of the time yeah i just think they're cool to work with they adapt really fast they learn really fast I'm lucky enough to get, I know there's a mix of, of athletes, obviously different sports, but I'm lucky enough to get people who are, I, I don't have to work, worry about the buy-in too much. If I decide, like, I think we should work on some breathing or some foot mobility or whatever. They've kind of sought, they've kind of sought me out in the beginning and mm. I have that buy-in and I do have empathy with people who maybe work in, within the organizations or within the clubs who are trying to get convinced that some of the athletes to do this stuff and they could not care less about it. So uh, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate that that can be tricky, but that's sometimes the good thing with having a bit of a social media platform or whatever, where you attract people who are interested in your work and, uh, they're great people to work with. 
Yeah. And the notion of just self-selecting for people who are ready um, and don't need to be convinced is very attractive. Because I mean, you as a professional, as a coach, you know, like when I work with someone, I don't, I, I actually want to learn from every person I work with. And I don't want to be wasting my energy trying to get them to do something they don't want to do. I don't want to do any of that anymore. Um, and just this notion that when someone comes to see you, the fact that they're keen and open-minded and curious and willing allows you to actually get data from them to see how they're moving, to see how their movement changes. And if you're spending all your time trying to get them to do something like pushing a rock uphill, it's not that enjoyable for either of you. And it's like, okay, come back and see me when you're ready, when you actually want to do this. And sometimes that takes an injury. Sometimes that takes like a performance, um, wall that they can't, um, that they can't get over. And yeah, I just, I couldn't agree more about the, the, um, basic drills, even for advanced athletes. And what I found is that their kinesthetic awareness in their body is sometimes like really deep, like really, like you can see them thinking deeply about something incredibly simple. And it's almost like they're mapping their body and really like get, they get a lot more data from their body mm -hmm. um, than the average person. So even a basic drill given to like, you know, you know, a 50 year old versus a 25 year old professional level athlete, um, they'll get different things from it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that drill is below the threshold of that elite level athlete. They just will take a deeper, like they'll go deeper with the awareness and the, and the mental energy that they put into it. So yeah, that's a really, um, I couldn't that's a really, more. I'm really, good point. With you. I'm really with you on that. And they often just need to be given the, the, awareness or the space or the confidence or whatever to just actually slow down because their body is wound for high performance it's wound for tightening up and pre-tensioning and co-contractions and the strategy that they're using if they're a tennis player or a sprinter or a runner or a footballer like that that strategy and those patterns are so deeply embedded into their body and they're used to creating tension a lot of the time so actually sometimes the most basic quote-unquote drills even though i don't even like using that phrase they are the best they just give them a chance to step back to tune into their body in a different way and it can make a big difference and this is where like professional sport isn't isn't about health that's that's important like even me playing at an okay level in ireland in gaelic football and hurling I wasn't healthy necessarily when I was doing that. I looked healthy. I was in good shape. My heart was strong and stuff, but I was playing in pain all of the time. And a lot of people are, and anyone who knows who plays at a good level knows that like, you're not going to be ever feeling 100%. But there does, so, so sport and health, performance and health are not the same thing, but there does come a stage where if you push so far towards the performance and you limit your health, then your health is going to start to push back and limit your performance. So, they need such they often just need small inputs or big inputs in small ways into their body that just brings them back a tiny bit on the health spectrum gets them back in tune with their body gets them to feel things in a slow relaxed manner and that can nudge for, forward the performance aspect because what is super underrated on instagram on social media i think is just how important feeling good actually is just how many good things can happen when you just feel good it's not spoken about it's strength is spoken about mobility is spoken about all these fancy things are spoken about feeling good is underrated <laughs> I, I completely agree and i like i like the way you said that because i've always sort of um 
mentioned that there is a fundamental trade-off where the, at the elite level of sport, the trade-off you're making is actually health. Because if you're completely healthy and you feel great all the time, you're probably not doing what the next athlete is doing to be one step above you in performance. But I never thought about it in, in the notion that if you go too far towards that side, the health deficit actually begins to limit your performance. So it's like the balancing that fine line of like, you know, doing enough on the performance side and acknowledging the trade-off you're making, but not doing it to the point where there's huge consequences on your performance. Because I mean, if you're hurt, it doesn't matter how good of an athlete you are, you can't play. Um, And yeah, and even back to that sprinter, the sprinter who can't get into a, you know, barefoot bodyweight squat, resting squat position. Is that something you address? And it's kind of a trick question because obviously it always depends. But um, yeah, that person comes to you and says, I want to be a better athlete. I want to unlock performance. I want to become more durable. Is that something you work on getting him or her into being able to do? Or is that something that you acknowledge like the trade-off we're making to make you a really powerful sprinter is that you're going to be missing some of these fundamental human movements. And maybe that's on the menu for later. Um, But is that something you dive into or is um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a good question. And I get asked that a lot. Every workshop, we're always asked like, okay, if we do, if I do this with a, with a great athlete and we, we don't just work with athletes, we work with lots of people. But if, if I do this with a great athlete, like, is it going to, is it going to mess up their sport? And I, I just, I actually think it's an e- it's a, it's a, it's an impossible question to answer, but it's also an easy question in some ways because you're not going to wake up one day. So you're not going to, okay, they come in, they can't squat past 90 degrees and then you do a drill and the next day they can always squat past 90 degrees. They just have it. I think there's a continuum there. And particularly, I suppose me, I'm lucky because I don't have to make too much of a trade-off. I work a bit more in the rehab space. And even the athletes that I end up programming for that are, are not injured, I actually get a large contingent where that kind of injured, but not really athlete that just, and client in general, that just fall in there that don't feel so good. And, Usually they have things that, yeah, I've, I've just moved too far. I've lost too much movement in this direction and we need to get it back. So it's not really a hard question for me, but I appreciate that it might be a hard question for someone else that's working with an athlete who they're, they're not really having issues. They're performing pretty well. They just want to push that more. Maybe they want to squat a bit deeper to build a bit more strength in those ranges. And I would say it's fine if you're not stupid with how you do it. If you're not mm. trying to push them, you're, you're, you're trying to be aggressive and you're negligent towards just a, a nervous system and a body, which some, some people are. But I think if you're just a good, like a decent coach, you're not stupid with things, you can nudge people further and further, like just along the path, but it's going to take time. You're, but I think this is coaching. This is training. There's no start or end point. There's, it's a mm. continuum where one day someone comes in, they feel a bit tighter. They can't get into it in as deep. The next day, it's a little bit more. It's not re- there's never really a, a beginning and an end. And there's always this little continuum of just figuring out, getting to know your client, playing around, see what feels good, opening up a little bit of space where they hopefully need it. Yeah, your feet are like smushed together from wearing basketball shoes and they're like you're just you're you've 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 sprained your ankle 20 times in the last two years okay we're going to work on some ankle drills some gentle dorsiflexion plantar flexion drills open up your midfoot open up your toes a little bit but they're still going to be a bit smushed because they're still playing 50 games that season so i think uh yeah i think they're that our stimulus is 
going to combat the stimulus that they're getting from their sport and from our, our lives. And yeah, if we're respectful of it, I think it's, I think it's fine. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a difference between wanting to make someone a more well-rounded, durable athlete without making a trade-off in their performance and over-optimizing something that you shouldn't be optimizing and not acknowledging the trade-offs you're making right it's like oh yeah we're gonna get you squatting because it's good for you to be able to squat but now all of your elasticity and power transfer when you're sprinting is gone it's like well that's probably not a trade-off they want to make so um yeah the other thing i found too is when i started you know involving the people i was working with in my thought process it was a they understood things a lot better and they were actually able to give me better feedback when they were doing things and it's something i wish i had known way earlier on like Two things that looking back uh, as a physio, you know, because I, you know, what led me to do to create the Foot Collective was like, I don't actually understand feet. I can't even fix my own feet. And I'm supposedly the knower. Um, this is like creating a really deep inner conflict. And I just have to figure it out. Like I have to erase any notion of me knowing what the hell I'm doing and start from scratch and do my own experiments with a completely blank slate. And, you know, it was kind of painful, right? Because you realize, oh, shit, I just spent all this time and money learning something that I know is actually ineffective and not true. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things was I used to treat, according to school, I used to treat areas in isolation. Like I would treat the knee in isolation. I would treat the low back or the ankle. And now that I look at any lower body issue as a, as a, now that I look at the lower body as a, as a integrated system made up of subsystems where no subsystem can be optimized independently of the others. I look back and I'm like, wow, how much time did I waste with people? Look, just doing the the one thing with the one area. Um, and that was one thing. And then the other thing was that I just didn't explain to people my process of thinking, okay, well, this is what, because I think people come in and they're like, well, this person knows everything. They're just going to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And what they don't realize is like, I'm guessing every time I'm making an educated guess because I may have more information or know what information to get out of you. But once I started saying, well, okay, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. This might be something that works. Let's do an experiment and try this. People were so much more open in their willingness to try things and to be involved in the process. Um, what is your impression? Like, what's the biggest thing that you've learned um, or What's your biggest insight since you first started doing this, if there is any big one of, you know, something you can't believe you used to do and now you do differently? I'm always curious about that. Mm, that's a good question. Um, it's probably it's probably similar to yours there, Nick, where it's just, yeah, getting people more involved, being very open from the beginning that I don't have all the answers. Every, every single person's body is different and we're going to kind of fuck around and find out. We're going to see what happens uh, yeah, in a respectful together. way. Yeah, together, exactly. And I think, um, I think people are coming in, usually it's changing, but the medical system, the health system, the training system, particularly medical and health, people are trying to outsource their thinking and their body to other professionals and just presuming, okay, I have this problem, you have I have X problem, you have Y answer. And we have bought into that as a society and 
different cultures but i think we're very similar all, all around the world i've been to america teaching workshops australia and every place i go they always say oh it's so shit here how we treat it's so shit how all this stuff works i'm like it's fucking it's the same everywhere so i don't know if i'm allowed to curse but it's That's the exact right. it's exact uh <laughs> it's the same everywhere everyone thinks yeah. they have it worse in ireland we always think like we go to, a, to the states imagine how well they do things they're so far ahead and then you go over there and you're like nope <laughs> people <laughs> yeah. have the same frustration it's just so, more expensive it doesn't mean it's better exactly exactly so um so yeah just involving people more not i don't want them to outsource their, their thinking to me or their body to me completely i want us to work together on it and that does come with a bit of experience and also confidence which is tricky to begin with because you want to give your whole self you want to give everything you want to fix someone who in five minutes you want to be the fixer immediately and actually when you start to strip that away you realize okay you are a very complex person with a whole history of injuries of beliefs about movement of training of um your your life basically and we're going to figure things out as we go along i do have like key skills that i like people to be able to do with their bodies um that i think are generic that most people should be able to do in some way or another but i try to not make assumptions basically is what i'm going to say i try to not assume that this person going in is going to need this drill and i would have done that in the past i think i see a shoulder that's okay someone's coming in with a shoulder problem a hip problem a foot problem okay i i assume they're going to have this and i'm going to try these three exercises mm. and we're kind of taught to think in that way and now i just try and make try my best not to make assumptions even though i still do but i try my best and that's been very helpful for me over the last couple of years just a blank slate let's see what happens yeah i think it boils down to curiosity too because curiosity it's almost like an ego check automatically at the door where it's like if you're curious then you're partially admitting that you don't know and you want to figure out and you need more data to actually make a good um a sort of assessment or decision and i think some assumptions like i think pattern recognition and the ability to observe movement and actually get a lot of high fidelity information is a really powerful skill so i think not i think some assumptions are probably valid especially if you're constantly getting them um you're constantly matching them to reality and saying that was a safe assumption to make it didn't actually leave me astray mm -hmm. but yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think too many people look at the snapshot, just like the flat foot thing, right? They look at the snapshot and they're like, oh, this person's going to need this, this and this. I've seen this before. But just even something as simple as the baggage someone's bringing in about the terminology that's been assigned to them. If you don't actually acknowledge that and dive into that, they might have that stick on them forever. And it might actually limit their potential to sort of move beyond whatever label has been applied to them. And you know, these days I try and say as few diagnoses as I can in terms of terminology and just use it as a challenge to explain how do i explain plantar fasciitis to someone without without saying the word plantar fasciitis and yeah. treating them like they're six years old and ironically that's way harder to do yeah. <laughs> um but it's so powerful because that is actually the language people need in order to understand and feel at peace with like oh it's not this big medical term that means i'm broken and i'm doomed it's actually just this simple thing where i'm overloading here and i'm not doing what i'm supposed to be doing here and that is like this action-oriented thing where it's like okay if i start doing those things I actually have some sense of agency in changing my body. And I think one thing people underestimate is like the body's ability to change. Um, and I, I think just the legacy treatments that we do uh, in the disease care system 
are a great illustration of that where it's like, okay, you have this thing, we're going to apply this fix. It's like, okay, but what about like the hundred unintended consequences of how the body's going to adapt in alignment with that now that that external thing's there? So yeah, I think, um, I think it's very, the sign of an intelligence person is the willingness to change. And I think all the smartest people in the space that I've talked to are like, not certain about anything, but have a lot of experience that contributes to their confidence in truth. Yeah. Right. It's like, I'm very confident in gravity, but if someone shows me an instance where gravity doesn't exist, I'm open-minded to being like, maybe I was wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, I think the term X, I used to hate the term expert. Um, because all the experts I saw were people that were like very book smart and had this title that they self-imposed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't actually think you understand this that deep. But now that I look at it, uh, I think reclaiming the term expert by like through proof of ability, like don't tell me what degrees you have, show me what you've done in your body and how you've helped people. I think that's actually a term that needs to be reclaimed. And um, yeah, what are your thoughts on just the notion that anyone can become an authority on an area of the body through deep personal experience and you know the perspective of someone comes to you and says david i want to get into the work you're doing i don't have any formal education i used to be a plumber but my life was transformed by what you did to me and i want to get into the space because i want to help people as well um what's your take on university degrees versus alternative paths to learning and personal experience like how do you you know, you can't tell that person what to do, but Jim, the plumber, what do you tell him if he wants to get into your work? And he's like, mm-hmm. where do I go next? Do I go to school? Do I, what degree do I get? What do I do? Um, it's tricky. yeah. How do you talk? It's, how do you it, talk to Jim? It, it, it's tricky because there, there are people are at different phases of their, their life. I kind of went on an alternative route around it where I went like studying with all these great people. Then I had to come back and get my certs and stuff like that so that I could actually work with people. So now when a, a younger person comes to me and and it's not just younger like anyone but they have to be in the right frame of mind where okay i i do think it's very helpful to go and spend four years learning to be a physio and i do think you learn lots of good stuff you learn some anatomy not necessarily functional anatomy but you'll you'll know the names of stuff at least um (laughs) which depending maybe you can tell you that too though it's real expensive to do that in school (laughs) it it is in ireland it's better because we don't spend that much on our education so we're, we're 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 a bit better but um you will learn to diagnose you will learn that maybe like because diagnostics is important if you're working with uh chronic injuries chronic or sorry acute issues or or anything like that if you're working in a sports team you want to be able to say okay this is actually probably more of a hamstring than an adductor or or xyz so diagnostics are important being able to put hands on people and have an insurance for that is is can be very very helpful so i just think the I think the issue, the schooling system is a mess. Like, it, no, no matter what you do, I went and did a business degree when I was younger and I came out. And then when I wanted to start this business, I couldn't even open the fucking business, never mind run the business. <laughs> so, like, no matter what, you get experience in the field by learning and meeting people and, and yeah. working and, and just getting and your hands up. dirty and fucking up. Exactly. So, you get, your, you get your hands dirty. That's how you learn. So, the schooling system is a mess. No matter what way you chop it, I don't care who. Who, who wants to argue with me, you will learn better on the job. But that doesn't mean that you you might not learn a, a, a ton in, in there and then be able to carry it out and learn more as you go. My issue with it is people going doing four, five, six-year degrees is when they come out believing they know everything. 
Yes. And you see that a lot. And now it's like, okay, now I'm an expert because I just learned all this stuff. I read all these books and my learning is done. That's where I have the issue. So if someone is willing, because I do, I get this question pretty much every day on social media. Like I would love to work the way you work and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure you get that as well. Um, I was, and they're saying, I'm thinking of signing up, signing up for this physio course and all this stuff. I would say, you don't, you don't necessarily have to do that. If you want to use manual therapy and you want to work with a certain type of people, person, you may have to. But either way, I don't think your learning will be ruined if you spent four years going there. As long as you appreciate and understand that when you leave, really, you're only getting started then. You're not the finished product. And that is, I think a lot of, phys- not just physios, but therapists fall into the trap of believing okay, I'm the finished product now and I'm going to walk in here and I have healing hands and they're going to fix everyone and they get a very rude awakening very quickly and they go two ways from there. It sends them on a learning journey or it it forces them to lock up even more and double down on what they, they, they thought they knew, but they end up very unhappy, very, very unhappy, not enjoying their job, maybe seeing 10 or 15 clients a day or maybe more and imagine doing that knowing deep down that i'm not really helping people that is not a good life to live not for me at least i couldn't agree more and i think the golden handcuffs of having letters next to your name from a degree are like you said the notion that you are the knower and that there's no more work to be done to improve your knowledge or deepen your understanding and also i think a lot of people get into this scenario where the business model of treating symptoms can actually be something that prevents people from actually moving into an alternate system, which is helping people understand how to move and empowering them with being able to understand their own issues and really work within the process of health instead of treating it as like these discrete events where like I have this injury, I do this rehab, I'm good. I get another injury. It's like this weird, this weird um, acceptance that this is just the process. This is the path. And there's nothing I can really do to make a more durable body. So I don't get injured as much. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, like you said, that mundane lifestyle of treating 15 people a day, doing something you don't fully believe in. I mean, like we said, at the start pain is the ultimate transformer. And I think a lot of these professionals are starting to kind of understand that, yes, it's going to be painful for me to really acknowledge that I don't know everything and that I might have to change my business, but the pain of staying the way I am is greater than the pain of doing that. Therefore, I'm ready to do some, have an alternative perspective. Um, one question I really like to ask people, because I think it's such a subject, it's a term we throw around all the time. It's extremely subjective. We ask this to everyone who joins our digital community. So we've had like thousands of people submit their answers. And it's, it's interesting to read everyone's subjective answer, but also interesting to see the general threads that we can tease out where it's like, it seems like a lot of people think this is related to that. Um, how do you define health if you had to do it in two sentences? How would What would David Gray's definition of health be? Uh, I won't hold it to you or reserve the right to change your mind anytime you want, but I'm always very curious to see how people frame it and what people include in that. Mm. I'm really bad at these type of answers and questions. <laughs> I'm terrible at them. Uh, every time I've done a podcast when there's one of these questions at the end, I, I, I mess it up. Um, no wrong answer. What is my... 
Yeah, but you want to be smart on it. You want to say you want to say <laughs> you want to say something profound. Um, I also think people underestimate the value of a pause. Like whenever I listen to Elon Musk, there's like sometimes like a thirty second pause, and I know <laughs> some magical shit is happening in that cerebrum of his. And I'm like, I'm not in a rush because I know the longer it takes, the more goodness is being created. This might be creating more pressure for you, but yeah, I think. Uh, his pause, his pause yeah. is because he's tapping into like AI or something like that. He has some <laughs> yeah. computer program running. Yeah, Elon the uh, robot is tapping into the AI database of the world. <laughs> exactly. Um, for me, health outside of the not being, not being sick. Let's say so. I'm not. I don't have cancer. I don't have a disease. I don't have anything like that. Because you can have all the definitions of health that you want. But as soon as one of the, you, you get told, like uh, your, your idea of health is going for a walk every day and going for a swim and all this stuff. But you walk into a doctor's office and you get told, okay, you have this diagnosis and you actually do, then your only idea of health really is pretty much not having that anymore and staying alive. Right. So I think that's important. And I know someone at the moment who is quite sick and like, her definition of health now is is not having cancer so mm. i think that's important and that helps us be maybe grateful for what we actually do have so i think that's that's the first and i'm going to put that aside so my definite uh, definition of health is being being not answerable to anyone else that's probably number one, not necessarily like my family and my friends and stuff, but not in a job where I have to wake up at this exact time, I have to do this. And more than anything else, being accountable so that if I do good things, like I get the rewards. And if I do bad things, I get that's that's on me. Whereas in other jobs, if I did good things, like my boss got the rewards or the, the company got the rewards. And if I did bad things, that was also on me. So I want, I want access to the upside and the downside. And I'm happy to take both if there's, a, if there's a, a, an upside and a downside. So that's what I want access to. That's, that's probably a big one. I need to be physically and mentally challenged pretty much most days i would say not necessarily every day there's days and weeks where i just need to shut off and do absolutely nothing because i've smashed myself too much but i need to have some kind of a physical challenge at the moment that's coming in the form of uh jiu-jitsu for me which i just started not too long ago um and then mentally i think my work gives me that uh on a very very regular basis and then the only other thing that i really need in my life is relationships with my friends and family and I don't need a lot I'm not someone that needs to have big parties or anything like that but I am quite family orientated we lived in Sydney in Australia for a few years and that was amazing and I had friends over there and I I had kind of some family over there as well but it wasn't home and we we wanted to move Mm -hmm. home so um so yeah physically challenged mentally challenged uh not sick that's the most important thing I think um and yeah, just mostly re- having some good relationships for me. That's a healthy life, and oh yeah, and of course like my autonomy. So that's my that's my idea of a healthy life. I could happily live with nothing else, and I would be good. Amazing. I like the start of that definition because, like, when you were saying having access to the upside and the downside, um, it to me it's like the term that embodied that was just like personal responsibility. Like, I if I do something good, I get the benefit. If I do something that has a net negative, then I 
am okay facing the consequences because it's on, it's like radical ownership and personal responsibility for your experience. Um, and I think that is, that's a big part of health, right? That's a big part of why, you know, people have essentially been sold this thing that you can, like you said, offshore the responsibility, like your health is your doctor's responsibility. Your health is your physio's responsibility. And I think it's just like a big lie. It's a big scam because they can never be responsible for your well-being. Um, and so long as you think that you're always going to be essentially forfeiting responsibility for taking ownership of your experience and what you do with your body. Um, what's the biggest thing you've changed your mind on in the past 12 months? This is a question I often ask people. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be a small thing, but what's, what comes to mind as like the biggest thing that's meaningful enough to mention that you've changed your mind on in the past 12 months? I'm going to have to pause again. Um, I don't know. That's okay. You tell me. You you answer for me first. You might give me some inspiration. I mean, this was a... Well, my definition of health is the process of learning how to take better care of myself and how to sustainably maintain all six pillars like we use the framework of the six pillars so movement sleep food the mind community and money um and just the notion of health being the process of learning how to upgrade those pillars in my life and triage like which one needs the most love and how do i how do i approach this with curiosity about how i can upgrade that um the biggest thing i've changed my mind on in the past so this is actually super recent maybe it's just the most fresh in my mind but you know i've always I kind of got pissed at one point where people, I I would hear people recommend transition shoes. Like someone's going from a very, let's call it a maximal unnatural shoe, highly cushioned, super stiff, super pointed. um, And they want to get to a point where they're comfortable barefoot. They want to wean away all this stuff so that they can reclaim a little bit of foot function. I would often make it very simple. It's like buy a pair of natural shoes, gradually start wearing them more and more and more. Um, and that it's really is that simple, right? Like, cause I found people got bogged down in the minutia of what's a good transition shoe. What's my first transition shoe. They'd end up buying like 10 different pairs of shoes to get there. And it's like, well, you've just bought a bunch of shit that you actually, every single shoe you adopted confused your body a bit more because it was less of this, but not quite natural. And now your body's recalibrating. So that was always my approach. And then Jim, one of the other leaders at TFC kind of sent me a message, even this was like two days ago. And he's like, he gave me this example. It's like, okay, someone's got really stiff feet. They're in a hugely built up shoe. Is it better that they buy like a, a foot shaped shoe, which still has support, which still has some cushioning, which isn't like the most flexible thing ever that they're actually able to spend like three hours in or to buy a pair of Vivos that I can wear for 15 minutes and they got to take it off because they're sore. It's like, I, I think the biggest thing I've changed my mind on is I need to take a more nuanced approach in terms of like presenting the transition to natural footwear, where it's not just about buy a pair of straight up natural shoes and then progressively start wearing them because the load management may be not as wise to do that versus maybe not 10 transition shoes, but like, what's your next step instead of like, what's the ultimate step work into that? What's the next step that might allow you to spend three hours in those shoes instead of 15 minutes. So I think that is, and that's what I appreciate about TFC is like, I think we've tried to develop this culture where people can feel comfortable disagreeing with each other and never taking it personally and always maintaining an openness in your mindset to be like, I don't, I'm not certain that I know the truth about anything, but I haven't been given good enough information to prove me otherwise. And if you do, I'm open to hearing it. So I think that's one thing I recently changed my mind on. It's just, it's not, 
a simple explanation may not be the best explanation in that case. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think I when I whenever I put up a pair of like vivos or something, or, or, or just a picture, I'm wearing a pair of vivos or something. Everyone asks like, "Oh, you 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 wear barefoot shoes?" And I say, "If you if you came into my like." my where i keep all my shoes you would just see such a mix of different things and literally i wake up and i just pick up the ones that i feel like wearing that day <laughs> could have more support less support so yeah i like people to wear things that they're comfortable in if they if they are aware of their body if they're not aware of their body then they don't even know really what feels good for them and that goes for all of their movement they don't know because they have no experience of anything else you don't know how good a hip that actually move could move would feel like because you can't move your hip so a lot of people don't have good awareness of their feet so yeah they're wearing any kind of thing but when you start to get educated and most of that i think comes from being able to move your feet well being able to move your sorry not your feet being able to move your body on top of your feet well and now you have a selection of shoes maybe it doesn't mean you have to have 20 different shoes but a few different ones different levels of support and you're not going to you're not going to end up in a shitty place by just putting on a shoe with a little bit more support that day you're 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 just absolutely not you're you just have different things that you can wear at different times depending on how you feel or where you're going and for the most part, you're working on how your feet move and you're going to end up feeling good. And some of those options should be a barefoot shoe. Some of them should be just going barefoot full stop. So I'm with you. Um, and what I changed yeah, I think, my mind on, I don't know. I think viewing I shoes as a tool, sorry to interrupt, just to yep. put a pin in that. It's like if people just viewed shoes as a tool to protect their feet and to bring them closer to whatever their aspiration is, yep. I think it actually creates an intentionality with like, I'm going to wear this shoe, this pair of shoes because um because this is my intention i think too many people are like i just want the most comfy shoes it's like they're the ones that end up walking around with these giant couches on their feet and it's crazy comfy just like sitting on a couch all day would be comfy but the minute you got to get up it sucks um so yeah sorry to interrupt yeah no i was just gonna say i don't know i don't know what i've changed my mind on i changed like just all the time small small little things but um yeah every single day i've self-doubt with things not in a crippling way but just trying to figure things out um so yeah probably one thing it's more of a macro thing but it probably would be i used to think that my like our business would grow in the direct relation to relationship to like how hard i worked and i think that was a very limiting belief not a bad belief to have because i'm a hard worker and i try and encourage people to work hard i think it's important but it also led me to feeling then like if we were starting to maybe sell some programs on online or something like that where okay i woke up and we sold a few programs you almost feel like a bit weird sometimes because i haven't necessarily traded that time for money so mm -hmm. i think that has been a very limiting belief and i know that sounds simple and i know that sounds obvious but actually when you look at how wealth is created in the world you don't see people that have that attitude uh towards things they it's more about just how much value can i give and again that goes back to like there's unlimited upside if i can give i can give unlimited value i can give unlimited i could get unlimited upside back so that's probably a big one that i'm fighting against all the time that actually 
because it leads me to be like if I have a day where I only have to work two hours in a day which doesn't happen that often but I actually need a break I actually need to not work I need to go and spend a day at the beach I feel like I should be doing more even though our business is in a healthy position where I can take a few days off and I don't need to work so that's um that's probably a big one not necessarily movement related but something I'm fighting against all the time I appreciate that I think that's a really key insight because it is something you got to wrap your head around, especially in the digital world where you can create a program. And if money is an IOU, people send you for value you've given them. You create one program. It's one unit of your energy. And 10,000 people at any time of the day, any time of the year can actually get value from that program with uh, no extra energy input put in by you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can view that as, well, I'm getting something for nothing, or you can view that as I'm being really efficient with how I use my energy. And I'm finding these energetic multipliers that allows me to take care of myself, to work on other things and to contribute other, um, contribute value in other ways to the world. So yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. Cause that is like a, it can be sort of like a glass ceiling where you self-impose this limit in the amount of wealth that you can bring in. And, you know, if wealth is something that needs to be recycled and actually should accumulate to the most effective value providers in the world, um, I think there's, you know, almost the stigma where it's like making lots of money is a bad thing. But at the end of the day, if you're recycling that back into, if you're giving true value, um, where you're not like tricking people into give you money, but people are actually getting value and they're thanking you by giving you money um, and you do something good with that money, it's like, I think most people come into a lot of wealth because they've been really good at allocating resources and delivering valuable things to the world. Those people should be given more energy so that they can recycle it back into the world. So yeah, appreciate that. I want to honor our time. Uh, Thank you so much for offering your time today. Um, Thanks everyone for listening and joining us today. Uh, And yeah, David, if people want to know more about what you do, uh, things you offer, where do they go? And uh, yeah, we'll wrap it up from there. Uh, probably the best place is just to go to Instagram, Nick. I think, uh, David Gray Rehab is the Instagram account, account, David G-R-E-Y Rehab. Um, because people might hate me when they see my, they might say, oh, he sounds good. And then they see my face and they hate me. So, uh, so (laughs) Instagram is a good place. We have some like programs available, uh, on our website, which you can go and check out from there. Just kind of DIY a foot one, uh, lower body one, upper body one. And then, we have some workshops, which um, we're going to announce a couple in the States coming up. Um, we have one in Vancouver. That's actually sold out. And we have one in Montreal close to you guys, I think. So that's coming up nice. in June. And uh, But yeah, I think Instagram is the best place and people can go there. And I just want to say thank you very much for having me on. Really enjoyed the chat. Um, give me some things to think about as well. So um, so yeah, nice to nice to connect. And I hope it's helpful for some people as well. Yeah. I mean, I got, I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm very grateful for your time. Maybe we do this again in 12 months time. Uh, we'll see what you change your mind about then, if anything. <laughs> I'll, and, I'll, uh, I'll note it down. I'll write it down. <laughs> and we'll see what your definition of health is like uh, at yeah. that point. But yeah, thanks for everyone for listening. Thanks, David, for being here. Uh, I'm going to end it there, but David will hang out for just 30 seconds when the recording's done. So thanks, y'all. We'll catch you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Restore to Explore podcast. To stay up to date with all things TFC, join our brand new free community. Inside, you'll find a growing library of education, training, and resources to help you resolve common conditions, restore natural function, and explore your body's potential with a community that's there to support you along the way. To join, just head to thefootcollective.com or you'll find the link in our show notes.